Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. 56 years ago this month, a Minnesota garage rock band's record was racing up both the local and national charts. Surf and Bird by the Trashmen was released in the fall of 1963 and became an immediate regional hit by capitalizing on the California surfing scene that was popularized by groups like the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean. By December of 1963, the song was in heavy rotation on top 40 stations throughout the country and came close to scoring the top spot on the Billboard record chart. This week, a look at the bands, the recording studios, record labels, and radio DJs who defined the Minnesota music scene in the early and mid-1960s. Rick Shefchik is the author of Everybody's Heard About the Bird, the true story of 1960s rock and roll in Minnesota, published by the University of Minnesota Press. Rick, welcome to Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks, Jim. Good to be here. The title of your book references the 1963 hit by the trashman Surfin' Bird. What was it about this song that made it so popular? You know, if I could really quantify that, uh, I might be in a different business. You know, I'd be one of those guys out in uh, <laughs> L.A. that's picking the hits. Uh, but when you look back to 1963, when that song was released, that was uh, in the fall of 63, and it was a big regional hit because it was fun. It was uh, it was very different from what anybody was hearing, but it had a, a very propulsive beat, thanks to Steve War, the drummer of the Trashmen, and of course the voicing that he gave to that song uh, made it something that if it came on your radio, you just had to listen to it. It wasn't the kind of song you could ignore. But why it became a national hit, kind of a more interesting story, there was a, a stall there in November, of course, when uh, JFK was assassinated. This song had been uh, rocketing up the charts, and then you would think, boy, after something like that would have happened, Surfin' Bird isn't exactly the kind of song that uh, the nation would be embracing in this time of mourning. But maybe the opposite effect was true. In December and into January, it exploded nationally. It ended up uh, number four on the Billboard charts in January. And I would have to assume that it was because the nation, after its period of mourning, was looking for something fun, different, escapist. And that probably also explains why the Beatles hit so big uh, right about the same time. I well, everybody's heard about the bird. Bird, bird, bird. Bird's a winner. Well, a bird, bird, bird. Bird is a winner. So we have a band, The Trashmen, and a surfing song. How did The Trashmen get into surf music here in a landlocked state where you really don't see uh, surfboards anywhere? Well, they took a trip out to California. Dick Dale and the Beach Boys had just started releasing surfing records that were trickling out to the Midwest, but it wasn't really a, a, a national phenomenon in 1962, in the fall of 62, when the Trashmen took a drive out to the West Coast. But they were curious about the new guitar sounds that were being played, and, you know, they had some downtime, and they just thought, uh, you know, we're young men, we can get up and go, so they did. And while they were in California, they listened to uh, a lot of Dick Dale. They didn't see him live, but they bought a bunch of his records. Uh, they did see some of the local surf bands that uh, were becoming real popular out there. 
And when they came back to the Twin Cities, uh, then now we're talking about early 1963, they decided to change their style. They thought surf music was the coming thing. Um, they even stopped wearing their suits and uh, tried some cut-off jeans and uh, and sport shirts, you know, short sleeve shirts. But they only did that a couple of times, and then Dal Winslow said, uh, we realized that wasn't us, and we went back and put the suits on. But they kept playing the surf music. Where did the bird dance come from? Well, the bird was a really popular dance uh, nationwide in uh, early 1963, late 62. Uh, may have come out of Philadelphia because uh, several of the artists that had songs about the bird um, were on the Cameo Parkway label. Uh, Chubby Checker did one, Little Eva did one. But uh, the, the hit that the um, Trash Man ended up doing was uh, based on a couple of songs by the Rivingtons in Los Angeles. They were a rhythm and blues group, and they had a song called The Bird is the Word and another song called Papa U Mau Mau, which were released uh, consecutively uh, late 62, early 63. But those songs, if they got any airplay in the Twin Cities, they never did uh, make the charts. So they were basically unknown songs here, and the Trashmen only heard that medley because a band from California called the Sorensen Brothers were playing it at a bar uh, in Amory, Wisconsin, called Woodley's Country Dam. They happened to be there that night. Steve War heard this um, fun medley, and uh, he told the rest of the guys in the Trashmen, listen, we really need to do this, but we're going to do it a little bit different, and you just follow my cues. So the Surf and Bird was born then. And, and it, of course, they didn't even call it Surf and Bird at the time. That was uh, apparently Bill Deal's suggestion to jump on the uh, surf bandwagon. And because they were already playing surf-style music, it made sense to call it Surf and Bird. Tell us more about the Trashmen and what set them apart from the other garage bands in the Twin Cities in the early 1960s. Well, you can start with ability because they were really good. Uh, Steve Warrer was a wonderful vocalist. He was very versatile, sang um, Jerry Lee Lewis beautifully, uh, basically any rock style. Uh, he was a terrific drummer, as you can tell when you listen to uh, Surf and Bird. It, it's just the first thing that grabs you, really, is, is how strong the drumming is. And uh, Tony Andreessen really became one of the great surf guitarists in America, really, in those uh, early years. But, of course, he was, he'd grown up listening to country music. He uh, could easily play Chuck Berry riffs. Um, he was, again, a really versatile instrumentalist. Dal Winslow, uh, um, great rhythm guitar player, sang backup vocals. Bob Reed, the bass player, had a very unique style that fit in right away when they started playing with them. So the whole thing just gelled around almost any kind of music that they wanted to play. They they would do anything from uh, Buddy Holly to uh, whatever was contemporary on the charts. We're talking with Rick Shefchek. He is the author of Everyone's Heard About the Bird, the true story of 1960s rock and roll in Minnesota. Rick, uh, let's go back a little bit earlier to the early 1950s, and there is a name associated with the local music scene that perhaps people have forgotten or never knew in the first place. Augie Garcia, what role did he play in really getting the momentum behind the local music scene, the local rock music scene in particular? Well, Augie kicked it off. There really wasn't a rock band that anyone can remember or cite before Augie Garcia started doing it in about 54. 
he'd come back from Korea and heard uh, some Fats Domino records over there that really got to him. And before he'd served in Korea, he had a band in uh, in West St. Paul, which essentially was playing uh, Hispanic-style uh, pop music, but he transitioned completely towards uh, rhythm and blues when he got back from the war, put together a very, very strong band, just a, a bunch of wild cats, really. Augie would be lying on his back on the piano, and uh, the guys would be writhing basically all over the uh, the bandstand. Uh, and it, it was a show in addition to playing um, a style of, of music which was evolving into rock and roll the people in the Twin Cities hadn't seen before. So uh, they had people coming from all over the Twin Cities to see them. And you could say that Augie really did start rock and roll in the Twin Cities. And the bands that came along very soon thereafter, getting started in 57, 58, uh, in there, including Mike Wagner and the Bops, uh, they'd go to see Augie. Um, they took a lot of inspiration from him, and it really did kind of progress from there. And of course, one of the big rock stars who came to the Twin Cities in the early days of rock and roll was none other than Elvis Presley. And that was an interesting concert at the old St. Paul Auditorium. Right. And uh, in your book, you relate that Augie Garcia, in some ways, upstaged the king. H how did that happen? Well, he uh, kind of packed the house. <laughs> you know, Elvis <laughs> Elvis relied on people who'd never seen him before, just hearing his records to come and see him. But, of course, Augie lived in St. Paul, and here was, uh, you know, he had a, a built-in following. They, I think, could have fit somewhere in the area of fifteen, sixteen thousand 16,000 into the St. Paul Auditorium at that point, but the Elvis Presley show in St. Paul drew only 3,000, and a good number of those were Augie Garcia's fans. There were plenty of seats available, as the uh, promoters sometimes like to say. <laughs> and, of course, uh, as soon as Augie started playing, his fans uh, went nuts, standing on the seats, yelling and screaming for him. They probably wanted to make a point that their guy was as popular and as good as, uh, as you know, the visiting king, so to speak, and Elvis wasn't even the king at that point. And Elvis's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, listened to about two and a half songs of that and decided that this was not going in Elvis's direction. So he walked on stage and grabbed Augie by the jacket and pulled him <laughs> off. Said, that's it, you're done. There must have been some incredible characters in the music promotion business back in that era. One that comes to mind is the guy that uh, actually promoted that Elvis Presley concert, uh, T.B. Scarning. And uh, he had every reason to think that he was going to make a lot of money. In fact, uh, as I understand the story, he uh, mortgaged either his house or his business to come up with the money to pay Elvis to come to town. And the two shows combined, the uh, afternoon show in St. Paul and the one in Minneapolis that evening, both only drew about 6,000 people as uh, Bill Deal told me later on, TB lost his shirt <laughs> and, and really uh, um, did a little promoting after that. But that was kind of the nature of that business. You took a swing for the fences, and if you hit a home run, you could last a long time. But if you uh, gambled on a show like Elvis Presley and lost, you know, you may never recover from that. On Ouija. It's time for Bill Deal. Wonderful WDGY. Rick Shefchik is author of Everyone's Heard About the Bird, the true story of 1960s rock and roll in Minnesota. 
Rick, uh, you mentioned before the break the name Bill Deal. He was an especially popular rock and roll DJ on WDGY. Tell us more about Deal's top 40 radio work, as well as his work hosting and booking shows. Well, Bill got into radio almost by accident. He was a newspaper guy, and that's where I got to know him. Uh, I worked with Bill at the St. Paul Pioneer Press for uh, probably 20 years. But he had displayed a flair in his uh, movie column in the Pioneer Press for puns and for jokes. And he just uh, really came across in print as somebody who was sort of hip, sort of with it, kind of uh, a wit. And when a broadcaster named Sev Widman, who was on WMIN, needed to find a replacement for himself for a couple of weeks that he was planning on taking off, he contacted Bill Deal. He said, uh, you ever done radio before? And Bill lied and said, oh, yeah, I know all about it. And then he ran down to the library and got a book about how to, how to do radio. <laughs> but, it, but it worked. Uh, he stayed in radio uh, essentially from that point until uh, he finally retired from WCCO, um, you know, maybe some 30-plus years later. But, of course, what he's best remembered for, after a a couple of different stations that he worked for, he uh, ended up getting hired by WDGY when they switched over to Top 40. Um, And they went out specifically to recruit Bill because he had the kind of patter that they were looking for. And um, that's when Bill came up with uh, calling himself the Deacon of the Discs, the Wizard of the Wax, the, the uh, Rajah of the Records. Uh, <laughs> uh, and and he, inv- he invented intros for every song that was on his top 40, something um, just clever, a pun off of the title of the song, something that was memorable, and, and kids loved it. He was uh, one of the early uh, practitioners of the, of the radio patter that became just uh, common across the uh, the bandwidths uh, into uh, say uh, you know the early to mid 60s uh, they started toning that down with all DJs uh, um, by the 1970s and and also uh, playlists got a lot tighter but in the early days when uh, DJs could uh, select some of the music they played and essentially entertain the audience with whatever came into their their heads Bill Deal was uh, was a pioneer in that request line rings nightly on the new WDGY and now here it is today's most requested Tiger 2 Well, in your book, you mentioned that uh, Bill Deal had a pretty arduous uh, weekend schedule, given all of the concerts he was promoting in various locations. I think there was one instance where he had uh, an appearance at a, a concert somewhere in Mendota, and then he had to go to Big Reggie's Dance Land, which was in Excelsior, and from there to somewhere in Wisconsin. Yep. How did he manage to do that? That's uh, that's pretty insane, on top of all of his radio work as well. Well, that was the very question I asked him, and he said, I drove real fast. <laughs> uh, Bill was was really the first DJ to uh, to do the personal appearances and MC the shows, and that was another thing that he didn't really plan on doing. But uh, he got a call from uh, a ballroom operator, probably in 1958 or so, and uh, they said that they were uh, having a band and they would really like to have this personality from WDGY drive to the ballroom and and uh, introduce the band and MC the show. And so uh, Bill thought, sure, I'll do that. 
And that was very successful. And then he started getting requests from other ballroom owners and other uh, dance club, um, you know, teen clubs, that sort of thing, to uh, come and be an MC. And also say, Bill, do you have a band that uh, you could suggest? So he started keeping a list of bands that uh, he knew would be interested in, in work. And of course, you know, some of them became more favorites of his, the ones that he knew were going to go over big. Mike Wagner and the Bops was one of the first, but he worked extensively with the Underbeats and the Trashmen and uh, the Accents and Gregory D and the Avantis. If you got onto Bill Deal's rota, so to speak, if you got into his book and he started calling you, you'd pretty much had it made. Beatlemania struck the United States with a passion in early 1964, and that, of course, gave birth to the the British Revolution. How did things change for the Trashmen and other local garage bands when the Beatles came to America? Uh, it had a different effect on just about every band, depending on the direction that they were interested in. Most of the bands that I wrote about in my book existed before they'd ever heard of the Beatles. And that kind of surprises some people. You think that this explosion of bands that we had in the mid-60s in Minnesota was primarily due to kids wanting to buy guitars and grow their hair long after they saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. But in, in fact, a majority of those bands... Uh, had been in existence and had been really successful uh, before the Beatles got here. So the bands that were interested in what the Beatles were doing and wanted to adapt to that sound uh, ended up growing their hair long, changing their style. Uh, a lot of them had success doing that. But you look at the uh, at the Trashmen, and I think it's fair to say that the Beatles had a, a, a negative effect on them. They were poised to go number one uh, the first week of February in 1964, and they had drawn 20,000 people to the St. Paul Auditorium uh, just uh, the night before the next chart came out, and Bill Deal said, you guys are going to be number one on Billboard. I have contacts there. They told me that that's what's going to happen. But the next chart came out, and I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles was number one. And really, that was the high watermark for the Trashmen in terms of record sales. You know, for another full year plus, their popularity was enormous. They they toured all over the country in 1964 and uh, a lot of 1965. But by 66 and 67, they continued to play the, the music that they really liked, the music that would get kids up and dance. Um, and a lot of it was uh, kind of uh, rockabilly-based. Uh, there was still the uh, Jerry Lee Lewis influence, still the Buddy Holly influence. And, you know, they were listening to the Beatles. They admired some of what the Beatles were doing. But of all the bands of that era um, that were popular when the Beatles came out, I would say that the Trashmen were the one band that didn't successfully adapt to the new sound. We're talking with Rick Shefchek. He is the author of Everyone's Heard About the Bird, the true story of 1960s rock and roll in Minnesota. You mentioned, of course, many local bands in your book, but another band we should probably talk about is the Gestures. They came out of Mankato, Minnesota. Tell us more about the Gestures and the impact they had on local music. The Gestures became the Gestures uh, just before they <laughs> released their uh, their their number one local hit, Run, 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 in the fall of 1964. That is a great, great record. People ask me, you know, what what's your favorite song from those days? And I always say Run, Run, Run by the Gestures. It's just a, a it's almost a perfect uh, two-minute rock and roll song.
they had a songwriter in their band, which was very unusual for that era. I mean, other guys would, would try to write songs, but primarily when you had a number one hit in the Twin Cities, it was really hard to follow it up because it was hard to come up with original material. Well, Del Menton of uh, The Gestures, they're from Mankato, uh, wrote Run, 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 and he wrote just about everything else that they uh, recorded in that era. Again, they had trouble finding a follow-up hit too, but I think that had more to do with the distribution of their records than it did the quality of their material. But you look at the Castaways, for instance, who were number one in the Twin Cities a year later with Liar Liar, which was a um, a band-written song, but they, they never came up with a, a, a solid follow-up. The trash men really couldn't write songs. I mean, they told me that. They said we couldn't write a song to save our souls, which isn't quite true because there's some later stuff that uh, Tony Andreessen wrote that is really pretty good. But you got to be lucky even if you've got the material. And in most cases, the local bands just didn't have the songwriting to sustain themselves. There's some names we should probably talk about that are integral to the local music scene in the Twin Cities and Minnesota uh, back in the late 50s and 1960s. And, and they would be K-Bank Studios, which I believe was over on 24th and Nicollet or thereabouts, 25th somewhere uh, in that area. Yeah, Nicollet I've been there a couple of times, yeah. but I, uh, you know, it's, it's basically just uh, down the street from the Black Forest restaurant. Okay, so in that, in that 26th yep. and Nicollet area. So K-Bank Recording Studio, uh, Soma Records label, and Amos Heiliker. Uh, let's talk about all three of those and uh, their significance. Well, Amos owned Soma Records, and he owned a part of K-Bank Studio. Uh, he also owned the Musicland chain, he and his brother Dan. So he had his finger in all the musical pies. You know, Amos was not musical. He was a businessman. The problem with Soma was that uh, for a long time, the Heilickers were making so much money doing other things that it, it, it wasn't their... Uh, sole focus, let's say. It made sense to them to, to own a piece of a recording studio because they were in the music business, but eventually K-Bank was sold in about 1967, and so they got out of that business, and that's about the same time that they folded their Soma record label, too, and, and sold that off. If they had been a little bit uh, more dedicated, say, if they'd been more like a Capitol Records or a Columbia Records or something like that, where that was the primary focus of the business, I think Soma might have sustained itself for quite a while. They didn't do any rock and roll until Bobby V came down from Fargo, North Dakota in the spring of 1959 to K-Bank Studio and recorded uh, Susie Baby on Soma Records, and that became a big hit locally. But they sold his contract uh, just a couple of months later to Liberty Records in Los Angeles, and I, I don't think they really thought that was going to be much of a loss. One kid from North Dakota has a little success on the charts. I, I'm sure they didn't think that he was going to have the kind of career that he ended up having. Then Dave Dudley records uh, Six Days on the Road in uh, uh, K-Bank Studio, and that's released on a Soma subsidiary label. And they sold him off to Mercury a couple of months later. So you're, you're getting the feeling like, uh, you know, this is an interesting sidelight for them, but there's no real passion there. But then when the, the uh, Trash Men hit with Surfin' Bird and they sold 38,000 copies the first week that the record was released, that got their attention. So they paid quite a bit more attention to uh, rock and, uh, and recording business in 64, 65 in that era. That was sort of the golden age for uh, local rock and roll. What is the lasting impact the Trashmen and the other early 60s rock bands had on the Twin Cities music scene? I, I guess it would be that they established the foundation. It was something that hadn't existed, and 
I don't think that people had even imagined that four kids, for instance, you know, could uh, buy some amps and then come up with a song that was catchy enough that they could go in and make a record of it and give it to Bill Deal and Bill Deal would put it on the air and it would start selling thousands and thousands of copies immediately. None of that had ever happened before here. It was always assumed that if you were going to have any kind of a recording career, you'd end up going to New York or Los Angeles or something like that. And, you know, most local musicians didn't even think in those terms. Augie Garcia, for instance, could have gone to Chicago and and maybe taken that next step up the ladder, but none of his band members wanted to move. And that was pretty much the case in Minnesota, too. But then finally, they found out, well, hey, maybe we don't have to move. Maybe we can do it here. We've been talking with Rick Shefchik. He's the author of Everyone's Heard About the Bird, the true story of 1960s rock and roll in Minnesota. Rick, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. It was fun, Jim. Thanks. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. Professionals in science, technology, engineering, and math, the so-called STEM careers, are in high demand. Yet women and people of color remain greatly underrepresented in these careers. Next week on Dialogue Minnesota, a look at a partnership between the University of Minnesota and a St. Paul Middle School to support students from groups typically underrepresented in STEM as they participate in a science fair. Be sure to visit us online at DialogueMinnesota.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time.